0: something that I've seen throughout my interviews when I ask people what brings them joy and happiness and really like what gives them endorphins every day. So many of the answers like collectively across all the interviews have been around connecting with other people. Hello
1: and welcome to the BBXX podcast. Let's get intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and I'm here to bring you content, conversations, insights, perspectives, and lessons learned that will bring you closer to a deeper appreciation for and relationship with yourself. I'm here to bring you conversations about sexuality, self-awareness, self-development. Relationships, intimacy, exploration that will guide you on your journey to deeper self understanding. Our close relationships account for 70% of our happiness and 90% of our well being. So, better relationships really does mean a better life. I'm so happy to have you here with me. And as always, I'm right here next to you along for the ride. On this wild, crazy, beautiful journey. On today's episode, we talk with Stella Stephanopoulos. She's the host of the Everyday Endorphins podcast, which hosts conversations on the nuances of mental health with the goal of inspiring others to feel empowered to take control of their own mental well being by focusing on what brings them the most joy and happiness. Stella has degrees in philosophy, neuroscience, psychology. Yes, that's all one. Creative writing and strategic management and is a contributing writer for Thrive Global. In today's conversation, we talk about subjective well-being, hedonistic well-being, self-determination, type 1 versus type 2 fun, the role of guilt, pride and shame in hustle culture how to evaluate your own happiness and well-being, and the key ingredients to help you tap into your own unique and aligned version of happiness. Hello, Stella. So excited to have you on the show today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yes, excited to dive into all things related to happiness, people's personal experiences and personal narratives and interpretations and lessons learned about happiness, as well as some philosophy, neuroscience, and psychology. So to start out, I would love to have you tell our listeners how you first got interested in this topic, which you now have a podcast related to, but I'd love to know kind of what your journey was in first becoming involved in learning about this space.
0: I feel like it's important to give a little bit of color and perspective to really why I developed an interest in this topic, because I think it helps people better understand really the vision behind everyday endorphins, the show, the brand. Taking it back to high school, honestly, at this point, I went to a very science-oriented high school in New York called the Bronx High School of Science. And all of my life, I wanted to be a doctor. I always was fascinated by how the brain and the body worked. I always just wanted to understand why things were the way that they are, very curious in that sense. And at the time in high school, I joined a rowing team. That was the first time I had ever joined a sport. I never really considered myself to be athletic because I never played sports growing up. I was trying to navigate like what it meant to be a student athlete. And I decided to create an Instagram account, which I called Everyday Endorphins, which was at the time a way to blog about being a student athlete and celebrating health and wellness from a food and fitness perspective largely. And As a rower, I developed a lot of confidence in myself because I was doing these really strenuous workouts and you build a sense of camaraderie when you're on a team sport that really was impactful, not only for my physical fitness, but for my mental fitness. And I really loved that about rowing. So I did that for four years. I kept up the Instagram. Flash forward to college. I no longer was a rower. And... I just felt like I didn't really know what type of content to post on the Instagram because no longer was the sport a part of my identity. So I would really only blog about maybe the workouts I was doing at Washu's gym facilities or like the food I was eating. And as time progressed, the content I was sharing started to feel kind of inauthentic, especially because when I got to college, I started to recognize really like this mental health crisis that we're all living in, and especially with young adults, college-aged students. And then when you fast forward into 2020, the pandemic, I was studying abroad, I was sent home. I had all of this time on my hands. I decided that I wanted to really resurrect everyday endorphins, but instead of using the Instagram as a way to promote healthy living from this food and fitness perspective, I wanted to start a podcast, which I felt would be the perfect platform to have discussions on topics related to healthy living and happiness, and just use the name Everyday Endorphins for the show. And so that's really how everything intersected and came together. In college, I had really developed an interest in healthy living through what I studied, which was this integrative major called Philosophy, Neuroscience, and Psychology. And although I did not pursue the pre-med track when I got to Wash U, I think the major really helped me just develop a greater interest in health and happiness, but not necessarily from the physician perspective and and wanting to pursue the medical track.
1: I have mentioned this to you before. I absolutely love the name Everyday Endorphins. And I could go on a whole podcast, other podcasts worth of talks about sports and identity and mental health. But I love how you mentioned that part about Mental and physical fitness, the relationship between that mental and physical health is very deeply related. And I think I'd mentioned this to you as well, that I sometimes refer to exercise as endorphin therapy. Now I actually refer to it as physical therapy, especially after going through chronic illness and just realizing that certain things for us are therapy through different modalities, be it physical mental, and of course, above all, the integration of those two things. So in having taken what you studied and then starting to have the conversations with these people, I'm really excited to get into what lessons you learned, what personal narratives people shared, but I'd love to hear what were some of the takeaways from this really fascinating integrative major that you did? I guess questions that it sought
0: to not solve, explore? And what were some of the key takeaways? So I can break down the PNP major a little bit. So philosophy, neuroscience, psychology is what this major was. And within the study of PNP, which actually sat within the philosophy department at WashU, there were essentially one of two tracks you could Choose either cognitive neuroscience or language, culture, and cognition, which was kind of linguistics. So you choose one of those tracks, and then you also pick an area of depth of study, either in philosophy, neuro, or psych. So I chose to do my depth in psychology and the track in cognitive neuroscience, which basically means the majority of my classes were psych, followed by neuro, and then lastly, philosophy. And I actually liked the philosophy classes the most. However, they were the most difficult ones because first of all, writing a philosophy paper is just incredibly difficult and really harshly graded and it's just one of those areas of study where it's so hard to conceptualize like what you're discussing and I felt like everyone in those philosophy classes were 20 times smarter than I was. So it was definitely a challenge. I really loved the cognoro part of it because neuroscience is looking at Perhaps like human behavior and motivation from like a bottom up perspective. Like you're understanding really the foundation, the building blocks, what's happening at the neurochemical level that explains like why we do the things that we do as humans. And so what I loved about focusing more on on neuro and psych was that I could look at the human condition from the most fundamental point of view, like looking at how things fit together in our bodies and our systems to understand and explain these psychological principles that we largely attach onto, which then help to prove or validate certain philosophical questions and theories, which is really what interested me about the major, like how all of these pieces fit together. And one class in particular that I loved was positive psychology, and it was really a class on the science of happiness and well-being. And to no surprise, this class was (laughs) very difficult to get into because like every single student at WashU wanted to take it. So you had to wait until you were just about to graduate to get off the wait list to be enrolled. And it was taught by Professor Tim Bono, who is an amazing professor at WashU. He was also a guest on my podcast. After I took the course, we did an interview that was kind of like a recap of positive psychology and big key takeaways that people could really resonate with and implement into their life to better understand the science behind well-being. And something that really stood out to me in that class was the distinction between two different types of subjective well-being. And really what subjective well-being is looking at how people evaluate their life and what is important to them, hence the like subjective part of this concept of well-being. And the two different types of well-being that we can think about. One is hedonic well-being and the other is eudaimonic or like eudaimonia. And hedonic well-being is this concept around pleasure, like what feels good in the moment and causes low distress. So you can think of shopping, like purchasing a pair of really expensive sunglasses or a handbag or something that you really want in like that moment of when you just get it. You're so happy in that moment. Or eating desserts like ice cream, even sex. Like there's just so many things that immediately satisfy us. And this is under this concept of hedonic well-being. And then you can think of eudaimonic well-being, which is a bit broader and thinks more about our life purpose and how we align our behaviors and our decisions and our choices with this greater sense of purpose. And eudaimonia really comes from this Greek root, which I love because I am (laughs) Greek around like one's true self and it's built out of this principle called the self-determination theory and when you break that down there's three different pillars one being competence so your ability to do things like being competent the other is the sense of relatedness so the strength of your connection to other people and then lastly the sense of autonomy so pursuing behaviors or acting out of decisions based on of out of your own intuition of like what's going to bring you the most happiness So those three things come together that build and create this principle or theory rather on self-determination. And that is deeply tied into our sense of eudaimonia and this idea of like eudaimonic well-being and thinking about our subjective well-being in those two different ways and understanding the distinction between the two was so eye-opening to me because When we think about happiness, we think, oh, well, if I achieve this one thing or if I get this one thing or if I do this one thing, I will be happy. We're waiting for that thing to happen to us or to get something else, like very extrinsic, like outside of ourselves. But when we think about eudaimonic well-being, it's actually looking inwards and there's certain strategies that are related to bettering our sense of wellness and our mental well-being that can help you strengthen your competence and your relatedness and your sense of autonomy that can then bring you towards this greater sense of eudaimonia. And that's really where true happiness lies. And I think as a culture, we're we're more inclined to follow this like hedonic sense of well-being. And we can talk a little bit more about that. But I just want to hone in on that point because looking at that distinction like really was eye-opening for me and I think is also very much rooted in the ethos of everyday endorphins, which largely discusses the importance of finding things in life that bring you joy.
1: Yeah, fascinating. One of the things that it reminds me of, these kind of categories, is something I'd heard of type 1 fun versus type 2 fun of something that is fun in the moment and may or may not be fun later. Maybe it's having a great conversation with friends, like watching a sunset. That's fun now and later. Maybe it's going out, dancing and drinking, and you're hungover the next day. That's not fun later. And then type two fun is something like training for a marathon where it's actually not fun in the moment. And we have to work hard for it. But when we look back in retrospect, it's really fun. And I've been talking a lot this week with people about how much to live your life for type one versus type two fun, because maybe we get too caught up in type one fun. But I think I also know a lot of people who get really caught up in type two fun and don't actually leave any time for type one fun. So that's kind of similar, this conversation of how do you choose to design or cultivate, right, or nourish your own, quote unquote, happiness. And there are these different paths that you can take. And I actually love the fact that it has a different name, eudaimonia, for example, which to me doesn't mean anything outside of this context that we're talking about versus happiness means so many different things. It means so many different things to different people. And I talk about this all the time, operational definitions where we could be talking about happiness and referring to two completely different things. And so having this new word to refer to and to aim for feels much more manageable than science and research often shows that like happiness is this far off in the future thing that is almost like unattainable. It's kind of like training for a marathon with no training plan. You're just like, I will one day run a marathon. It's like, well, if you don't get up, if you don't train, if you don't practice, if you don't do the activities that are more likely to create that result if you don't cultivate joy, inspiration, connection, gratitude, feelings of contentment, all of these things that are actually the key ingredients to happiness, then if you're just looking at the horizon, you won't get there. Lastly, I could go on for a long time about delaying gratification and how we work for these more material things that we think will bring us happiness, but we're horrible at predicting our feelings in the future, and the things we think will bring us happiness won't. So I'd love to dive in a bit more to what you just talked about because I find it fascinating and I don't know that much about it. A lot of this is new to me. Will you just quickly recap the difference between eudaimonia as the second one? What was the first one called?
0: The first one was hedonic well-being. And it's really, if you think about delayed versus immediate gratification, hedonic is like immediate. It's those immediate pleasures that give you that it's like a dopamine rush, honestly. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, hedonism. And I want to also go back to what you were talking about with like type one versus type two fun, because I think that's such a beautiful analogy and ties in so directly to what we were just discussing. And an issue that I have with the way that social media portrays what it looks like to be healthy is that it largely swings towards this type two. For example, when you look at those, I don't know, what I eat in a day videos or my 20 step morning routine, I get that maybe there's like a sense of inspiration and like, I'm not going to lie. It is a guilty pleasure. Like I love watching them because I think they're well produced. Like it's very aesthetic and pleasing to look at. But then there's like the catch where I start to feel bad about myself where I'm like, well, I'm not doing this 20 step morning routine every single day. Like that's just not happening. So am I not healthy? (laughs) Like, Did I lose a grip? Like what's going on? And that is a very dangerous mindset to get into, which is why I believe that it's really important to like straddle between both, to find a balance between both or rather like find a way to integrate both into your daily life because you can't discount the type one happiness. Like it is fun and great to go out dancing with your friends. Like that's fun. There's enjoyment and pleasure in that. And that can foster a sense of connection and relatedness. And when we go back to this idea of the self-determination theory, those three components were competence, relatedness, and autonomy. And actually, the most important piece to that puzzle is the relatedness. Like, the strength of our interpersonal relationships are actually, like, one of the strongest predictors towards our well-being. So why would you discount going out and having fun with your friends? Like, that's equally as valuable, as drinking enough water and getting enough sleep. And that maybe swings more towards this type two, the delayed gratification, doing the things that you need to do to have the fundamentals to stay healthy. And so my issue with the way happiness and health is portrayed online is it just doesn't feel inclusive. It feels like you have to follow this regimented process and it can feel stressful and overwhelming when it's like there's a million other things that we need to think about every day. So, I think that's also part of like the mission and goal behind my podcast, and really this concept with everyday endorphins is like recognizing that health is very nuanced and that what might work for someone might not work for someone else. And that's okay. So, I just wanted to put that out there because I think it really speaks to what you brought up around these two different types of happiness and how one, of more isn't necessarily better than, like, one of the other.
1: I couldn't help but think about the fact that, because I think on social media, it's, like, polarized. There's both. And I think that our culture simultaneously idolizes and demonizes both of these. Where on social media, you see somebody, like, on a trip in Italy doing nothing but fun things and living in the moment or doing a 20-step morning routine (laughs) and, like working for their future success and retiring by 40 or whatever it is. Simultaneously idolizing these both extremes and demonizing them where people feel guilty if they just live in the moment and do things that make them feel good. And people also feel suffocated when they're trying to work for the future and not able to enjoy the present. And so it it seems that a lot of energy focuses around the extremes where, like you said, it's a combination of these things. And so how can we create more fluidity and more space and better cultivate these ingredients in a way that is like cooking, right? It's not baking. Because another thing I heard you saying is it can't be so calculated in the same recipe it won't even work for one person versus another baking is very calculated and measured and if you follow it you'll get the results cooking is much more intuitive and like you maybe follow a recipe you take some of the ingredients but you can make it totally different it'll be something different but might still be delicious it's not going to be a cake that falls flat because you didn't follow the recipe it'll be discovering something new that is more aligned with what you like And then lastly, just a little tidbit that I want to throw in there when we're talking about hedonistic well-being, kind of hedonism in general, something that always comes up for me is that as far as I know in the English language, there isn't necessarily an equivalent for hedonism that is something necessarily positive. To me, it doesn't necessarily, oh, they're a hedonist. It doesn't necessarily have a positive Connotation. At best, I would say it's neutral or generally it's kind of self destructive, right? Versus in the Spanish language, there is something called being a gozador or a gozadora, which means an enjoyer of life, which to me means pretty much the same thing as hedonism, but it's a good thing. It's like, oh, yes, they are an enjoyer. They enjoy life. They know what the good life is. They know how to have a good time. It's almost a similar concept, but lands completely differently. And I'm like, why do we not have this word that means that enjoying the present moment is a good thing? We basically just have kind of more scientific formal language that has a bit of a negative context. And that's our only way of referring to that same person or concept.
0: I love that you bring this up. And it's funny because... The other day, actually, I was talking to my aunt. She's She lives in Greece. She's been there for like over a decade now. And she's been visiting New York for the holidays. And we were on a walk the other day. And I was asking her, you know, would you ever want to move back to the States or maybe New York? And I was asking her, do you like living in Greece? And we were having this dialogue really about like the pros and cons of like living maybe in Europe versus America. And something that she had said is, despite some of the negative things or the things that she doesn't love as much about being in Europe or having been in Greece for so many years, is the fact that like there's more flexibility in Europe. Like you basically get the whole month of August off of work. And when they're done, they like with work for the day, they really disconnect. And there's value in that. And I think American culture is so rooted in this hustle, work hard work, like I mean, the reason why burnout is a real term, like there's a reason why burnout's been getting so much attention now in our culture and ways to reduce burnout and all of that, which is so important. But I just think it's interesting that you mentioned that because in European countries, like there is this focus around just enjoying like the pleasures of life, like enjoying being social and going out with your friends and taking time to rest and like this whole concept of taking naps midday, like. Businesses shutting in the afternoon. I mean, there's not, I'm not saying one way is right versus wrong, but it's just interesting because in America and like especially a place like New York, you're seen as like lazy and unproductive if you're taking time to rest. And that's actually something that I've really had to like grapple with because I see myself as a very ambitious person, but then I conflate ambition with like productivity and then if there's a lack of productivity it's like being lazy and that's not true so it's been even a challenge for me to give myself more grace and compassion and recognize like if you need to rest you should rest and it doesn't mean that you're going to miss another opportunity it's actually okay and like it's something you should do and it's it goes back to this point around like finding that sense of balance which is very difficult and it's always ever changing but something that I'm also just trying to work on right now.
1: Yeah. And I think that luckily there are so many shifts coming in the culture and because of COVID and people who are protecting their time and drawing more boundaries and all these articles about how people didn't used to take off the week between Christmas and New Year's. And I think almost every single person I did, And the people I knew who didn't took off, like, the week before that and then knew nobody else would be working that week and kind of, like, strategically played it that way, right? Versus the norms are changing. Even if expectations of the workplace aren't changing, people's willingness to play the game is certainly changing. But there's still certainly a level of guilt related to rest, recovery, these boundaries certain level of pride related to delayed gratification, pride related to hard work and hustle. And it's funny because the flexibility in Europe and things are closed. Like you can't even go run errands if you want to. You can't even be quote unquote productive at certain times of the day if you want to. So it almost like doesn't give you the option. It gives you the permission versus in a city that never sleeps, right? In New York, things are probably open 7 a.m. to 10 p.m., you don't have that permission. You have to find that intrinsically and create it for yourself. And in an environment where the people around you aren't doing, that is infinitely harder. Not only are you not being given permission, but you're looking around you and not seeing anybody else giving it to themselves versus we're probably all just waiting for someone to step up and the culture to change as a whole. But that kind of herd immunity to the culture of hustle is going to take a long time. But challenging ourselves to also change our own operational definitions of these things, I often talk about how rest is one of the most productive things we can do. Just yesterday in a session with a client, she was talking about how she had finally taken a break this past year and had totally redesigned her ways of working. So now she's working smarter, not harder. That's a lot of what we had worked on. But had she not taken the time to pause actually be able to look up instead of looking down and on this hamster wheel she wouldn't have been able to redesign those systems and she would have still actually be she would have felt more productive but working in ways that are much more inefficient much more wasteful of time energy much more stressful and so the irony is that we're often very wrong in our ways of thinking of things if we take a break we're going to re-energize it's going to be more productive because of that but we'll also be able to maybe strategically think about more productive, not in the sense of achieving more, but achieving the same with far less time and energy. Take that same lesson of how do we measure it by the process instead of the outcome? How do we measure it by the efficiency or the balance, not just of productivity, but the joy, the rest, all of that? How do we just think about it differently? And the last thing I'll say is that similarly with ambition, how do we challenge our definition of what it is to be ambitious? We think of like how grandiose the goals are, of a certain status, title, income, whatever. But taking the month off in August, the entire month of August off, especially if you are somebody who lives in the United States, that's ambitious. I love that. Go for that. Nobody's doing that. That is an ambitious goal. Take the entire month of August off unplug. So change that view of what it is to be ambitious. Going on a certain number of trips, getting a certain number of hours of sleep, whatever it is.
0: Yeah, completely. And I love that point around like reframing how we think about ambition and I feel like we can't talk about ambition and success and all of that without also bringing up like the comparative mindset. And I forget Who said this quote? But it's like the famous quote that comparison is the thief of joy. And yes, obviously, like when I think about, I don't know, like being a kid and not having a comparison mindset in the slightest, like I feel like I was still pretty ambitious as a kid. I like to do a lot of things and I was very fortunate to have the opportunities presented to me so that I could. Do a lot of different things growing up. If I didn't have that in my environment, it'd be a totally different story, but I was lucky to have that. And I think about all the different activities I did, and just like children are, largely speaking, very happy because they're not thinking about like what they're accomplishing versus what the next person is doing. Like they're very much just focused on really the here and now. And so Something right now that I'm trying to think about is overcoming this cognitive dissonance of where two conflicting things can be true at the same time. Like, I can still be wanting to achieve these lofty goals and like striving towards having these ambitious intentions and like wanting to have these accomplishments in my life. But at the same time, like, I can still give myself the opportunity to rest and recharge and. Relax and like binge watch TV, like those can exist at the same time. And there's a dissonance with that because I think it's so rooted in our mentality that if we're not fully devoting a thousand percent of our effort towards one thing, then we're not going to achieve it. Like if we're wasting time by relaxing and watching TV, that's taking away from the time that you could be using to do something else. And that's Like, just you you guilt yourself into these thoughts, and it's very dangerous. But then when I think back to like when I was a kid, yes, I would work hard at certain things, but I would still like there was the simple pleasure in like waking up on a Saturday morning and watching TV and just relaxing and like not feeling like I needed to leave the apartment to go do something. And granted, your routine and schedule as a child is obviously very different when your parents are taking care of you and you don't have adult problems and responsibilities. Versus actually being an adult and having to kind of take care of yourself and do things more on your own. So it is like different. It's not like you can necessarily compare the two, but I think it's more so around just the way that we engage with ourselves and how we think about ourselves and our routines and our schedules is really fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, I had wanted to bring up comparison as a question here and something That quote says it perfectly, right? How he can be the thief of joy and joy being one of the key ingredients of happiness. And I just learned this morning while listening to a podcast that people tend to report lower levels of happiness on their birthdays, largely due to, and I think the holidays could go into this as well, New Year. But these are all milestones. What a milestone does is kind of give us an opportunity to reflect, see where we're at, give us a measuring stick against other people. And so people tend to report lower levels of happiness on their birthday because it is a time where they're more likely to compare themselves to others. So often can be this time where we question why we're doing things and the way we're doing it and if it's right or not, and it can lead to a lot of stress and doubt. However, if we can take that and use it as an invitation to reinforce and reaffirm the way we're doing things, then that can make us even more confident in our choices. But that comes with knowing why we've done it, right? If we're just living the default life and we don't know why we've made these choices, and in fact, they weren't for us, then certainly comparison will uproot a lot of doubt and fear. But in the case where we have chosen to Build a company in a certain way that gives us work life balance, run our business in a way that allows us to have more freedom or choice or not have to have as much responsibility of managing people, give us more creative input, be able to work with a certain type of clients, all of these things. And if we know that we have made those choices, and what I do is I help people create the vision of their life in the future and then work backwards and reaffirm their choices of why they're doing this because it is leading them to that future vision, right? That maybe happiness on the horizon, but not where there's no path between here and there. Those ways of working, ways of designing the companies are those key ingredients, those actions that make it more likely to create that future vision. When we do it in that way, then we can remind ourselves, oh no, I've made this choice. Like maybe the way that person's doing it is great, Maybe it's also just a post on social media and we know nothing about how they actually feel and how they're doing. And maybe they are happy because the vision of their life in the future probably looks different. And that's why the current vision looks different. And so comparison is so dangerous, but I would love to invite people instead of looking to comparison and getting lost in the doubt of using as it it as an opportunity to reaffirm the way you're doing things and or burn things down and start over if need be. But a reminder that you have the opportunity to choose the way that you want to live your life, the way that you want to create everyday endorphins and incorporate joy, inspiration, connection into your life, which I use that combination of things because in my research about burnout, I kind of created this theory that those are actually the antidote to burnout. If we don't have joy, inspiration, connection, or whatever other ingredients are important to us, creativity, rest, right? Sometimes it's more about we're not experiencing or feeling than rather what we are experiencing too much of. So all that to say that comparison is very dangerous.
0: Yeah. I mean, so many great points that you bring up. Something that came to mind, actually. And we can move a little bit away from this topic of comparison being the thief of joy, but tying more into something you had mentioned around taking control of your decisions. Something that I found to be really fascinating through my studies was learning about the negativity bias, which I'm sure you're aware of, and maybe many of your listeners are as well. But it's this concept that negative affect, like negative feelings, negative experiences, they tend to loom larger than the positive ones. They really outweigh bad feelings, outweigh good feelings, essentially. And we it carries more psychological weight, which is why it's so much easier to quickly fall into that like negative comparison mindset or to ruminate on negative things. It just stays with us longer and it really captures our attention. So we're kind of like psychologically hardwired to direct our attention to those things. And I think what's really difficult for a lot of people is not feeling like they don't have the agency to make the healthier choice. But in reality, like recognizing that maybe this is something that we all experience because it is psychologically proven that we all kind of tend to default towards these negative feelings and emotions. Just recognizing that that is part of really the human condition and knowing that you do still have a choice to redirect your attention towards something that is a bit more positive. And the process of the redirection can be achieved through certain strategies like meditation, like breath work, like even physical activity, getting your mind away from things, creating a headspace so that you can have the tools and the skill sets to build more of that resilience. And I think that's really important to talk about because it also kind of permeates into other pillars of our health and well-being, especially relationships. Humans are meant for connection and social connection And as fundamental as it is to our well being, it's actually probably one of the hardest things as well because humans are so complex (laughs) and navigating relationships can be very difficult. Something that I've seen throughout my interviews when I ask people what brings them joy and happiness and really like what gives them endorphins every day, so many of the answers, like collectively across all the interviews, have been around connecting with other people. If it's a parent, maybe they'll say, Tucking my daughter into bed brings me joy every day. Or going for a walk with my son. A lot of people say <laughs> like cuddling with my dog. Like that's maybe not connection with another human, but it's connection, having these relationships. And then also not even relationships with others, but the relationship you build with yourself, I think, is super valuable and important as well. And when we think really about like our health and well-being you know a guest of mine put this so perfectly I interviewed the CEO and co-founder of a company called Therapy Notebooks which basically provides science-backed research and theories into like actionable tools through a series of different like guided journals and self-help workbooks and I asked him about his perspective of health and he shared that he thinks about all the different, Areas of his life as being like a function of his health. Like, health isn't one separate thing. It permeates into everything his work, his sleep, his exercise, his nutrition. I and mean, I think that's such a good way to think about health because it's not like separate, it's all encompassing. It's very integrative into like every single aspect of our life. And I feel like this common theme that we're, we're talking about here really is relationships and how the sense of connection also is like so deeply rooted into our well-being and our happiness.
1: Yeah, I remember being kind of astounded and also not surprised at the same time when I read the results. And at the time, this was several years ago by now, but there there was this kind of calculation that our close relationships accounted for 70% of our happiness and 90% of our well-being. And so that's where I got the kind of therefore better relationships equals better life. And BDXX and this podcast's mission is to help people better understand themselves so that they can live better relationships as a result. And that starts with, just like you said, starts with the most important relationship of them all, the one with ourselves. And so how that permeates all of these, and instead of thinking of these separate categories, they're all fluid. Like you said, health permeates. But Health and relationships is built on health. Also, I know certainly when I was going through health crises, it puts a lot of strain on relationships. Simultaneously, my relationships were the only things that helped me get through the health crises. (laughs) These are all interdependent and related and built off of one another. But I love that way that the person you mentioned defined it of instead of like, here's my health and here's these other things. What's my mental health, physical health, work, health, relationships? health, or whichever one you want to use as kind of your North Star category and see and measure how it's integrated into and performing in all of the other separate yet deeply intertwined categories. In terms of some of these really important things, right, whether it's money, relationships, stress, all of these things Play into happiness, but it seems like there is a key threshold for them, right? Beyond which, like money, for example, there's this research where past a certain amount of income, it doesn't affect our happiness or it plateaus. It doesn't have a significant effect. But of course, below a certain amount, if we can't meet our basic needs, right, then we can't be happy. It's more difficult to be happy. I don't want to. Say that you can't, but it makes it more difficult. What would you say some of these like foundational thresholds or ingredients are above which we can kind of create our own recipe or switch up the ingredients or the quantities or the amounts?
0: I think that's what we're all striving to understand as well. Like, what are the things that we need to set us up for success? Like, to set us up for. Leading a healthy life and allow for that flexibility where you can kind of mix and match and see what works for you. I'm by no means a happiness expert, quote unquote. And I, this is really drawing from my own experience and through the interviews that I've done or the research I've read to support the podcast. But I think it's really, it comes down to having a strong support system. Like I think that's super foundational and important. And like you mentioned, Quality over quantity, because that's what's going to be the most impactful and nourish you. And then, of course, sleep is so important getting enough sleep. I definitely feel a switch in my mood when I don't get enough sleep and I'm more irritable and I don't make as healthy choices when I'm exhausted. Like, I tend to crave, I don't know, like sugary foods for whatever reason when I'm tired. So, sleep is definitely so, so, so important. I would also say another foundation for just really setting you up for greater happiness in life is practicing gratitude. And what I mean by that is not like prescriptive in the sense that you need to sit down and write down five things you're grateful for every day, or you need to do a gratitude meditation. Those are all perhaps like tools or strategies you can do to bring more gratitude into your life, but cultivating that sense of gratefulness, however you think is most like natural and organic to you and believable. Because once you can start to kind of hardwire that into your brain and into your thought patterns, there's so much joy that comes out of being content and happy with what you have. And recognizing that being grateful really like is kind of this driving factor towards feeling happy in life. And it also kind of goes back to earlier in our conversation when we were looking at the different distinctions of happiness, like looking at it external from us versus internal. And having a gratitude practice or however you want to define it, I think is one way to bring that sense of happiness back within you. And it kind of reinforces this idea that happiness is not to be achieved. It's not like in 10 years, I want to be happy. You're not going to be happy in the future unless you start now, like unless you do the things now. And another part of this formula or not even formula, but like things you can do to have this foundation of happiness also speaks to your earlier point around like those small steps, these micro steps, like little things you can do every day to bring you a bit more health and happiness into your life. And I think it's about breaking down those goals into really bite-sized, actionable pieces so you feel confident that you can achieve it. And once you are able to do those things, it's that much easier to tack on a bigger goal and implement more of that. And so then it's like contagious. The more you start doing things that are good for you, the more you're going to want to keep doing it. And then it's exciting for you. And so I think that foundation just can grow stronger and stronger and bigger and bigger. And that's what will propel you to the next step where you can begin to switch things up and really figure out what works for you for that sustained sense of happiness and health.
1: I loved all of those explanations of sort of the foundation, the key patterns, the things that help build momentum, right? What I hear is thinking about it not as again, this end point we've talked to in the future that's uncertain and we d- we're probably thinking of something in particular that may or may not actually make us happy in the future, but the goal being building momentum. The goal being cultivating things, kind of gardening, right? It's not like you just have this garden where it's like, oh, one day in the future, I'm going to have this beautiful lush garden. It's like, you got to dig holes first. You got to plant seeds. You got to water them. Nothing's going to happen. It's slow. And then it's all about that process. And something that also jumped out to me that had occurred to me earlier is when you mentioned in the eudaimonia some of the things you had mentioned were confidence, intuition, being a part of that, correct?
0: Yes, it was competence, relatedness, and autonomy. Those are the three components that play into this, the self-determination theory, which really drives eudaimonic well-being.
1: That autonomy going back to the choice and When we're choosing for ourselves, right, and choosing to live the life that we want rather than the one that has been chosen for us. And I don't actually know how I hadn't brought this up earlier, but another qualitative study that I'm obsessed with or qualitative, not necessarily study, but there was a nurse who worked with people at the end of their lives. And she did a study with the five biggest regrets Mm -hmm. at the end of life. And the number one biggest regret was, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. And so going back to this, I know sometimes it's so hard to believe that we have a choice or have the control of our environment or circumstances. Perhaps even sometimes we don't. You mentioned we do have, and there's of course this expression, but we can choose how we react. It's so fucking hard. <laughs> it's so hard. I don't want to make it sound easy. I don't want to minimize how difficult that is. And I also don't want to minimize the fact that we have more control than we often allow ourselves to believe over choosing our life, our career, the way we live, things we want. It's easier to think we can't move. We can't switch careers. We can't quit. The only thing harder than pushing through is pushing pause. And when we take those breaks, like mentioned earlier, that's the time a lot of revelations come up when we might look around and realize we're not living the life we want. We haven't made choices for ourselves. It's certainly not easy, but you certainly can do it. Again, on this list, the number two biggest regret was I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Number three, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Number four, I wish I'd stayed in touch with friends, connected, close relationships, people, probably includes family. And number five, I wish that I had let myself be happier. Because we get stuck in this cycle where we have to earn it. And if we live in that mindset, we're never going to have done enough. We're never going to have earned it but we steer away from that type one of just allowing ourselves. We think of it as something that is earned. It's a consequence of the work rather than vice versa. Being happier is the ingredient for the success or for the happiness or for actually working better. So that autonomy that you mentioned earlier is just huge. And these regrets kind of summarize a lot of that aspect of close relationships just being foundational to everything and of course their consequences of right probably lead to better health all of these other things perhaps even more success if we're happier right instead of will more success make us happy and taking that route what if we're happier and maybe perspective challenge here maybe if we were happier we would actually be more successful it's the cause not the effect but really coming down to this one of autonomy and what if you do have the choice you mentioned a lot of these incredible ingredients presumably a lot of takeaways already from your podcast i'd love to hear if there are any other takeaways that come to mind that you want to add from your experience of having talked to so many people experts, also people with personal experience, people just with learned experience through wonderful things they've gone through, through terrible, difficult things they've gone through. Any other takeaways and or examples that you think would be helpful? I love really being able to, while we talk in theory, then being able to kind of paint a more clear picture that people can either relate to or be able to see what we've talked about kind of exemplified.
0: Yeah what we were talking about on this common theme of what makes people happy is the relationships they have, the connections that they build. Also a lot of things that maybe we think aren't like healthy for us still bring a lot of pleasure. Like a lot of people's New Year's resolutions are to eat healthier and I don't know, exercise more or even like, I don't know, limit their coffee consumption because caffeine isn't great for you. But (laughs) what brings a lot of people joy is their morning coffee routine. Like it's very interesting really just to see how nuanced and how there's such a wide variety of what can bring you joy. And I think rooting back to that and remembering that is also so important because it ties into this concept of autonomy and actually recognizing that you do have the choice because I think oftentimes we can feel so powerless To do the things that are good and better for us. And granted, it can be harder for some people than others to want to make that choice or to remember that they do have the power within themselves. Like, for example, if you're really depressed and it's a win to even just get out of bed, how can you say, Oh, I want to just go meditate? Like in no world are you gonna have the impetus to like sit down and meditate? Because the challenge for the day was just getting yourself out the door. But I do think that if you see your health in like these bite-sized pieces and if you're 10% better the next day than you were the previous, like that's good. That's something that should be celebrated and that's acting in a healthy and health-conscious way. That in it of itself is health. It's not like, oh, I need to overcome this to be healthy. It is in that present moment if I'm just 10% better than I was yesterday or if I made this one small choice that will benefit me in a different way. Like that is health. That is good for you. And so I think coming back to that is super important and it's something that I've also seen across a lot of my interviews. One last thing I'll mention also is when I first started the podcast, honestly, like I wasn't even sure if I had the credibility to speak about a lot of the topics of conversation that, you know, are being discussed on the show because I've been fortunate to have never been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder or depression, or I've never had to see a psychiatrist or been medicated for anything. And that's not to say like that couldn't happen in the future. Like anything can happen in life. You never know what can happen to you and the things that you can experience that could be really traumatic or distressing. Up until this point in present day, I've been very lucky to have like a very naturally positive and optimistic demeanor. Which I think has benefited me in certain ways where it's made it easier for me to make those choices to like lead as healthy of a life as possible for myself. When I started, I was a little, you know, not sure if I had the credibility to talk about certain things. But what I've come to realize through interviewing such a wide variety of guests from such diverse backgrounds and life experiences is that we can all relate to. Just our common humanity, that life is inherently challenging. And no matter where you fall along the spectrum of mental health, we can all relate to wanting to feel happier and to wanting to lead a purpose driven life. And that shouldn't be exclusive to only those in the category of experiencing severe mental health struggles. It's something that we can all relate to. And I think what excites me so much, really, about how. I think this narrative is progressing is really just continuing to destigmatize the conversation and open up spaces for people to share their stories with the hopes of inspiring and empowering other people. And so every episode that I do is an interview, and there's an intention behind that. It's not about me. It's about them and their stories. And of course, I'm driving these interviews, so I share my own personal experiences, and I have my own thoughts on things and on certain matters. But it's about what the guests are offering and giving them a space to share either what they've built in the health and wellness community or their own personal practices. And I think what's beautiful is that there's something that everyone can relate to and that they can take away. And I think that's true to health and wellness. There's something that everyone can take away and relate to in their life, no matter where along the mental health spectrum they may fall.
1: One thing that I did want to mention As another kind of one of these ingredients, and of course, there are so many that this conversation could go on for hours, but people's natural state, you know, you might be somebody who is very naturally positive. Some of it might be circumstantial. There's also like a biochemical aspect where some people are more prone to being happy, joyful. Other people are less, and even outside, of course, of mental health conditions, disorders, illness, whatever it is, health, physical illness, all of that, that obviously plays into it. But even in normal, healthy, without anything diagnosable, people have a different kind of base or foundation. And so also using that, not necessarily to kind of read into that label or limit yourself accordingly, but also to know what's best for you. And another way that intuition came up for me and this autonomy and intuition Is not just kind of in the future of designing the life you want all of that, but in the moment, what is right for you? And this is also a really difficult thing where sometimes we want to delay the gratification, right? Or like work for something, right? Getting up in the morning if we want to do a workout. When the alarm goes off, we don't necessarily want to. But after you do that workout, generally, you're probably going to feel really great and be happy you did it. But sometimes you also want to sleep and you're going to sleep and be really happy that you did that too, so using the power, believing you have the autonomy to choose in the moment and using your intuition to know what's best, whether it's going out or staying home and giving yourself more power and authority and trying to lean into that to also guide yourself in the moment for, yes, when do, should, do you want to and need to, and does it feel good to lean into, let's say, type two fun or the eudaimonia versus maybe hedonistic well-being or type one fun. And giving yourself the permission, not just kind of in the big picture, but also in the moment to guide yourself and build that muscle of knowing and finding those patterns, what works. Similarly, finding what doesn't work is just as important so that you can build that momentum and build your own happiness in a way that works for you.
0: It's like body and mind wisdom. A good friend that I met while I was on my yoga teacher training program. I went to Bali and I was there for about a month and a half and I got my certification to be a yoga instructor. And I became really good friends with this woman, and her name's Aya, she's incredible, and she was also a guest on my podcast. And she had kept reinforcing this idea to me that you have the wisdom within yourself knowing what's right for you, and you have to just come and continue to tap into that intuition. And to not sound like fluffy, but like really there's so much value behind that. There's so much noise, external noise, Around us, you should do this, you should do that, you should eat this, you should do this workout. And it's so hard to filter through that. You should go out and meet more people. No, you should stay in tonight. Like there's just so many things out there, and, and people have their opinions and there's social pressure. And, you know, you will start to suffer the consequences the more that you're trying to just please others for the sake of pleasing other people instead of really just tapping into what your body and your mind needs in that moment and being okay with that. And she just had. So much wisdom herself. And it was really inspiring to be around her and to have made such close friendships that summer because I think it really challenged me to reflect on how I think about this idea of tapping into my intuition. And I think it's something that will just continue to evolve and grow and hopefully strengthen as I move through life.
1: One thing that often comes up. In talking to people with people pleasing tendencies, is this idea or this realization that a lot of them eventually come to where we're trying to do what's best for other people, but sometimes we don't even know. We think we know, and we're really just operating not based on what's best for people, but what we are assuming or projecting or guessing that is best for them. And sometimes what's best for us is that also what's best for the other person. That's not always going to be the case, but. Sometimes, actually, in doing what's best for us, we can also become more tuned to what's actually best for other people. As we get ready to wrap up this amazing conversation that could certainly go for hours, I would love to ask you if there is any story or stories in particular that you wanted to share from your show that inspired you or challenged what you thought you knew or taught you something new in terms of what any of the guests on your show have shared about their journey or search or exploration of happiness or everyday endorphins?
0: Yeah, that's a really lovely question. So to date, I've interviewed, published 91 episodes. So that's like 90 plus guests. It's a lot of people that I've spoken with and there's a few episodes that come to mind But one that I'll share today is I did an interview about a year ago, honestly, at this point with these two parents who had lost their child to suicide. And it was such an impactful interview for many reasons. So the conversation was largely focused on the experience of losing their son, but also the relationship between art and mental health. So the image behind me, that is actually a piece of artwork from the collection of their son's art. He was an artist. His name was Charles Norton. And the figure is called a Pippin. And he created these different drawings, different Pippins, that each figure essentially is a human and has their thumb up in front of them and then their middle finger pointing up behind them. You can't really see from this distance. But just the image itself is meant to show how the way we portray ourselves on the outside doesn't necessarily reflect how we feel internally. Hence, like the middle finger up behind your back, something that someone can't see, which I found to be very fascinating. The artist had developed these drawings while in a mental institution. So he was really struggling with depression and other mental health illnesses. And so there was clearly like a lot of like motivation behind or inspiration rather behind like where these figures and drawings were coming from. So we talked a little bit about like how art is really deeply tied to our mental health and can be an expression of how we feel. And then we also spoke about what it was like for their parents to experience the loss of their son. And something that really fascinated me was how their family was very financially well off. Their son had been afforded so many amazing opportunities in his childhood, getting to live really all over the world. And when you look at it from a distance, it may seem like how could someone who has so many things in their life be so upset and unhappy and get to this point where they want to take their own life. And it really just drives home this point of no matter maybe what might be afforded to you, you could still be deeply unhappy, even if I'm, like optically things look good in life. And so just having the opportunity to speak with the parents and get to learn about their story and also see how they've been able to move through grief, And also have been able to do so much good with the artwork and can help open up the conversation around mental health and hopefully turn the figures of the Pippins into like a symbol for mental health awareness is just so inspiring to me. And of course, I'm sure if they could have their son back, like they would in a heartbeat, they would do whatever they could. And there's no way that you can justify this experience and like ever see it as something positive. But there is something to be said around being able to move through grief and move forward in life and do something that's really good from something that was really horrible and tragic. And just that interview really was so impactful to me. And it's episode number 56, very amazing conversation with very incredible people. So that was something that really just stood out to me.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I'm definitely going to look up the episode and have a listen. I looked up the Pippins and so I could see them more clearly. And I really appreciate kind of how that is a symbol and the concept of what you see is not necessarily even me. Like you don't know. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways here is just as other people who see you, you being anybody listening, whatever you put out isn't the full story. It might not even be the same story. It might be a completely different story or fraction. People look at our brain's process so little. When I kind of studied NLP, there was this metaphor that I think of a Pollock painting, right? And if you were to take all those dots, what are each of our brain is processing when we're exposed to let's say the stimulus of a whole day or even a whole story is one tiny fraction. It's like a small collection of dots that's probably only one color and doesn't show any real part of the image. And that's what we're using to create the own story in our heads about somebody else or about something that happened or about an experience. So just recognizing that we don't know the full story or perhaps even any significant part of it, of somebody else's life, somebody else's experience, how they're doing, we can choose to share how we're doing and share more of the story, but we're only ever looking at such a small part of it that there are these two different stories, the thumbs up in front of us and the middle finger behind us. And going back to comparison, when we can recognize that we don't know somebody else or what's happening or how they're feeling, so there is no point in comparing, right? And for all we know, I think the irony of the comparison is there's always somebody who's looking to you comparing and feeling bad about themselves. So let's not reinforce and fuel that. And also remember that the way you see yourself is totally different than the way somebody else sees you, not necessarily for worse, right? Like some people, you are somebody else's inspiration. Just as you're comparing and feeling bad, somebody else could very easily and probably is doing the same to you. So how can we acknowledge those facts and those different perspectives and save ourselves the trouble and the stress of that comparison and just focus on our own garden, our own cultivation of these key ingredients? Thank you again for sharing that story. And as we wrap up, my last question would be, we've talked about so many different things and a lot of theory, science, research. I love to leave people with, practical, actionable advice. We already talked about what some of the key ingredients are, but I'd love to to have you share any of the kind of actionable advice or practical things that people have shared that they do on your show that you would like to share with our listeners that they can kind of walk away and try and put into to practice to help them on their journey to happiness or to eudaimonia or perhaps even to some hedonistic well-being? Yeah,
0: (laughs) it's a great question to land on. There have been so many different tidbits of advice or strategies that have been offered from my guests on the show. I'll just throw a few out there that might map onto like different pillars of our well-being. So if you're looking to like limit your social media consumption or just unplug and detach something that was expressed to me was the value of maybe charging your phone outside of your room and buying an alarm clock, like having that physical separation so you don't feel tempted to scroll endlessly at night. That's something I have yet to do, (laughs) but it's on my list of something that I do want to try because that might make me have more restful sleep and I might feel better actually spending less time on social media. So that's like one piece of advice. Another strategy that has been shared on the podcast. And really going back to what we talked about earlier with practicing gratitude is having like a gratitude notebook and writing down three things every day that that person is grateful for. And I actually do something kind of similar to that where I actually have a mason jar and to the best of my ability, every day I will try to write down on a little piece of paper something that I enjoyed doing that day or I was looking forward to or just something that like I was grateful for that happened in that day or generally in life. And I'll just fold it up, put it in the mason jar. And every few months or so often, I'll open it up and get to read and reflect on just seeing how like there's so many great things in life that happen to us. And it it ties back into this principle we talked about earlier, the negativity bias. We're hardwired to focus our attention towards things that are negative negative. So having like a physical reminder of all the good things that can accumulate is so gratifying and empowering to like continue to to lead a healthy and happy life, however you define that for yourself. And then the last strategy I guess I'll share is taking the time to connect with others. It's so hard in life to stay in touch with people, especially those that maybe we lose touch with and we've been meaning to reach out to. And I can't remember, I cannot recall where I saw this. I (laughs) think it was on Instagram. Maybe it was like a post from, I follow a lot of like health and wellness accounts, whether it be like the well section of the New York Times or like some content from Pop Sugar or Well and Good. But I saw like an article be posted about the value of just having like an eight minute phone call. And there's a lot to be said around just the feelings of happiness that come from like getting a phone call from someone that's it's unexpected and just reconnecting with an old friend or calling a family member and just letting them know that you're thinking of them or something that you saw reminded you of that person. These are easy things that you can do maybe like on your walk to work or in between a meeting that can kind of just rejuvenate you and recharge you in a way that's really fruitful and just nourishes yourself And that's something that I've talked a little bit about on the show as well, when we speak about health as it pertains to our relationships and our connections with other people. So those are just a few of the many (laughs) strategies for bringing a bit of endorphins into our everyday living.
1: Amazing. Thank you for sharing those. And coincidentally, one of the things I really want to focus on this year, which I had already defined, but you happened to just mention is I want to spend more time on FaceTime or on the phone with people I love. So thank you so much for the actionable advice, the stories from all of your conversation on your podcast, the takeaways from your studies and kind of threading this beautiful conversation of science, research and personal narrative to help people on their own journey to happiness. Thank you so much. And I look forward to chatting again soon.
0: Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure being a guest on your podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime If you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism, we'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the Book Club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.